pursuing the truth, living in love. Veritas is a grassroots network of Catholic young adults growing together in Christ. For more information or to see a schedule of Veritas events, visit catholicveritas.com. That's catholicveritas.com. Today's podcast features a monk's cellar event with Father Colin Wynn of the Diocese of Sacramento. Father Wynn completed his theological studies at the Angelicum in Rome, receiving an STB as well as an STL in Moral Theology. He was ordained to the Holy Priesthood in 2013 and appointed pastor of St. Catherine Drexel Parish in Amador County in 2017. In this episode, Father Wen discusses how the modern world's utilitarian view of reality has stripped us of the ability to readily see the transcendent in everyday experiences, especially in the sacraments. How do we rediscover the sacramental idea? How do we renew the great gift of the liturgy? How do we bring people back to the church? Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI speaks to this great challenge. Perhaps he has some wisdom for us. Let's tune in. Pope Benedict XVI's parents, they are named Joseph and Mary, Joseph and Maria. Um, They met because Mr. Joseph Ratzinger put a classified ad into a newspaper, which I'm gonna read for you right now because it's just amazing. This is it, ready? (laughs) And take notes, this is wisdom and discernment for all you single people here. This is how to do it. He says, middle ranking civil servant, single, Catholic, 43, Immaculate past from the country is looking for a good Catholic, pure girl who can cook well, tackle all household chores with a talent for sewing and homemaking with a view to marriage as soon as possible. (laughs) This is the best part. Fortune desirable, but not a precondition. (laughs) Who answered that? You ask? One Maria Pensner, age 36, an illegitimate baker's daughter who was trained to cook, replied, she did not have a fortune, but they were married four months later. And now we have Pope Benedict. Yes. Okay, so free dinner for Peter. Our speaker tonight, we're so happy to have him here. Father, this is your first time, I believe, speak for this group. I don't know why it's his first time. We should have had him uh, a long time ago, so we're glad, we're glad to have him now. He's been a priest in this diocese ordained. This is his fifth year. He studied at the Angelicum. He's been, uh, he's a pastor currently at St. Catherine Drexel. Before that, he was vicar at St. Peter's and St. Vincent's. And so please give a, a big, big round of applause to Father Conwin, who will lead us in prayer. Okay, it's a good intro. Uh, today's the feast of uh, St. Barnabas. So we're going to use it for our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. 
O God, who decreed that St. Barnabas, a man filled with faith in the Holy Spirit, should be set apart to convert the nations, grant that the gospel of Christ, which he strenuously preached, may be faithfully proclaimed by word and deed. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very well. So, um, some years ago, um, I was helping to host a young adult event, and we, I, I brought in somebody to speak about liturgy. And... Um, it went terribly. So, um, just, uh, just, uh, I realized as we, as I like, I love talking about liturgy. I love talking about the sacraments, uh, because they are the center and the heart of the church, as Pope Benedict Emeritus would say. Uh, but at the same time, I realize it's a sensitive area. So, um, We'll be sensitive, okay? Um, obviously, and at the same time, it's just to kind of obviously, uh, we're, we're avoiding kind of the extremes in the church, and this is what Pope Benedict Emeritus would really say, is we've got to, and I'm going to stop saying Emeritus. Obviously, we're re not recognizing Pope Benedict as the current Pope by saying Pope Benedict, but I'm not going to say Emeritus anymore. So, Pope Benedict would say, you know, you have to avoid the extremes, right? And then the extremes are on the one side, and we can go very far to that side, would say, you know, uh, Right at the end of the Second Vatican Council, right, we did away with the old liturgy or what we call the extraordinary form, and we just have the new liturgy, and so that's where we're going to go by, and and it's new and it's developing and it's creative and it's all of these things. Okay, it's it's a break with the past. Okay, that's one extreme. Doesn't make sense. Okay, the other extreme, maybe over on this side, is that yes, the council was a break with the past, and so we just have to hold on to what was before the council. Right, so just the older form of the mass, the extraordinary form. Forget this new Nova Sordo. That thing is crazy. The people in charge were nuts. You know, we got to get rid of that, right? So on both ends, what you see then is kind of this rupture in the church. Okay, and, and Pope Benedict would specifically say there was not a rupture at the council. He has some good reason to say that. He was at the council, right? I don't think any of us were. So, um, and so he speaks about this continuity, and I think that's an important place for us to start, no matter where we are, and especially in terms of our experience of the liturgy, uh, wherever we go to Mass, however we experience the liturgy, is, is to realize um, we're talking about this continuity from the beginning until the present day. Um, so, yeah. Um, that said, uh, just a, a side note. Um, most of you, like me, have only lived under three popes. John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and Pope Francis. Uh, and the reason I picked Pope Benedict especially to talk about tonight is because while John Paul II was the pope of my younger years, he died in 2005, the same year I graduated from college, um, Pope Benedict was this, the pope of my seminary years. And so especially my own formation was very much in the, in the heart of uh, Pope Benedict and then Obviously, now we have Pope Francis. So, uh, and he's the Pope of, I would say, my priest years. Um, so, anyways, Pope Benedict is really kind of at the, at the forefront. And I say that in part also because if you, the kind of the way we always spoke of it in Rome is that if you, um, if you wanted to understand Pope, Pope Benedict, you wouldn't really listen to him live because it was kind of boring. <laughs> You're just kind of like, okay. But you go home and you print it off the internet and you would read it and you'd be like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Okay. Whereas with Pope Francis, it was more so listen to him live because if you read it later, you're going to be like, eh, it's all right. Um, and that's not an insult on either case. It's just what Pope Benedict has, it, 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 
and in a certain sense, perhaps what some of us feel at times is missing is he was a great theologian, and he is. Um, and then there's, so there's a great richness there that um, hopefully we'll dig into at least a little tonight. So just a little intro of why we're speaking about Pope Benedict, even though he's not the Pope anymore, but he's still very relevant for today. Okay, um, a couple of the things about Pope Benedict that I think are really awesome. One is he's very, even though he's not, wouldn't consider himself a Thomist, he's very much Thomistic in his thought. In what sense? Um, he's rooted in the Church Fathers, which means, once again, he's not starting at the Second Vatican Council and going forward. He's going back to the beginning. He's going back to the scriptures. He's going back to Augustine and the like. So he's rooted in the life of the church. He's not making it up. Um, the other thing I really like about Pope Benedict is that he can diagnose what's going on currently in our culture. And the reason why so many Catholics aren't going to church today and why people aren't becoming Catholic, even though we might have some converts here, the reason why most of our RCA programs are like, right? Um, there's not a lot of people in there. Why? Okay. Um, he's able to, I would say, diagnose it in, a, in kind of a beautiful and a rich way um, and hopefully put us in the right direction as well if we take him to heart. Yeah. So that's where we're going to start. As you can see, I talk really fast, so I'll try to talk slower. But as my parishioners know, it's not very easy for me to do. Huh? It's a good speed? Okay, all right, I'll keep going then. So, where do we start? Um, so one of the things um, Pope Benedict um, put together, and actually it was Ignatius Press, put together this huge fat tome, which is like the theology of Pope Benedict on the liturgy, or really Ratzinger on the liturgy, okay? And it's huge and it's fat, and you can go buy it, and it's great, um, and that's where a lot of this comes out of. But it's like a thousand pages or something, so, you know. Nighttime reading. Okay, so one of the things he, he talks about in that book, which is really a bunch of his articles and such, is this idea that sacramental reality, so the idea of the sacraments, is now lost on modern man. Modern man doesn't understand the sacraments or, or what, it, what a sacrament is. It, it's just, it's so beyond their, our understanding now. Um, why is that? Well... Because at the end of the day, in the, the way, in fact, in which we've kind of shaped our modern education system is, is in terms of function, right? And so most of us go to school and we study so we can get a job. And so that job can pay for whatever we need to do, right? It's very much in the sense of a function. I'm going to train you to do a job, right? I'm not going to teach you how to be human, right? We don't think about that in terms of our education system in general. Exactly. Um, and, and I mean, that's, that's, that's a fundamental component. Why? Well, because then we don't train our young people, especially, to perceive uh, meaning and purpose and symbolism behind things. Uh, and, and especially with the, you know, obviously the, the increase in technology, this makes it even more difficult. But basically, we're training people to be functionaries, to be technocrats, to be good at doing something, but not good at being human. Okay, and so then no wonder then when we're talking about sacraments, which have a, right, there, there's something behind what we can see, behind matter, behind symbol, symbols, right? We're not training them to see those things. And so, yeah, you can go to catechism for one hour a week, and you can go to mass on Sunday, but if you're not trained to see that way all the time, then, then yeah, it's just and some empty rituals I do on Sunday. In the moment where my mom and my dad aren't forcing me to go, or I don't feel entertained, or I don't like what the priest said, or the music really sucks here, right? I'll go somewhere else, or I won't go anywhere at all, right? Because I haven't been trained to see to see anything beyond what what's before me, right? Um, 
So that's kind of the problem, and it's a massive one, right? It's, it's obviously a huge one um, that's, that's shaking kind of the foundations of our, of our faith. Um, as you and I know, you can go to most churches, and you'll find lots of white hair. We don't have as much white hair here. But you'll get there. Um, we all will. The, um, but it's a lot of white hair. And I look out there every Sunday, and I've been to five different parishes now where I've served, and it's everywhere I go. It's white hair. And these are younger communities, too. It's white hair, right? It's like, this is not going to go very well. And, and, and well, anyways, we're very good at hiding also how old we are. And so you look out, you're like, oh, well, they're not that old. It's like, no, they're all like 80 and 90, and they're going to die soon. It's, I'm, it's true. <laughs> Okay, so anyways, and I look around and I find out how many young adults are there, and I'm like, well, it's only be 20 of us left in a couple years. No. Um, anyways, so it's a problem. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a problem. Obviously, it's a problem. Okay, now, um, so going back to the beginning, I, so I, I would say the fundamental problem that we have is an understanding of the human person. So anthropology, right? We need to get the proper understanding of the human person because that shapes it shapes everything. It shapes how we raise our kids. It's how we educate our kids, how we live our lives. It goes back to a proper anthropology. Uh, how do we understand the human person, okay? What's the false anthropology? Um, a few things I just want to mention about this false anthropology. One is it reduces the human person to simply needs, okay? Not purpose, uh, not meaning, but just animal needs, okay? So, so what... What do I need to survive? Okay, what's going to bring me, you know, immediate happiness? Okay, so we reduce this, this, this being who's made for more, right, has these spiritual desires down to just animal desires. Do I have pleasure? Do I have rest? Do I have entertainment? Do I have success? Do I have a power? And it's no wonder then, um, and then you guys know this, but I mean, you see it all over the place. Suicide is increasing. Right? Anxiety, frustration, anger, all these things are increasing massively all over the place. I was just reading a study that just came out. It was an article today that said, actually, it's very interesting to note, people who are Catholic and actually practicing their faith, their suicide rate, and this was among women, their suicide rate that they did in the study, not only is it lower than like, like Protestant women who don't go to church and Protestant women who go, do go to church, right? It's, it's lower than Catholics who don't go to church, it's like dramatically lower. People who actually live out and practice their faith, right? To have some kind of existential meaning to their lives. And so when you eliminate that completely and you just say you are you and your desires, right? No wonder there's, there's a level of unhappiness because we're made for more, okay? But, but the world kind of, and how we're shaping our young people is that it's just needs-based, okay? That there's not this sense of, of more, right? Um, but just kind of these animal needs or desires. That's Thomas Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes. Um, John, John Locke will go on and he'll say that man, not only is he, is he just rooted in his needs, but he's this absolute independent individual. Like he's own, his own little monad, okay? Um, he's the center of reality, okay? Um, and what ultimately happens then is what, is he, what are we saying about the human person? Well, we're, we're taking on this authority like we're God, but we're not God. So we can't do everything we want. That's why we get a lot of frustration and anger is because we can't be God and we want to be God. Um, but we're kind of putting ourselves in the center of reality, even though we're not God. Um, and once again, obviously, that there's, there's a great danger that you can't be happy that way, right? When you, when you, when you, when you basically claim God for yourself. Um, third, John Jacques Rousseau says that man can also perfect himself. Okay, so obviously with that, you definitely don't need God. Um, and 
what? You can do it all yourself, right? You can sanctify yourself. You can save yourself, so to speak. But we know as human persons that it doesn't quite work, right? And so there's this constant frustration. I'm not happy with myself, but I'll put on appearances, right? I'll put on my Instagram or my Facebook or my Snapchat, whatever. Look how amazing my life is, right? Everything is perfect and so amazing, even though it's not, right? Um, it's something you see, especially as a priest, right? Everyone has like, oh, look how happy everyone is. They're happy with their family, their kids. And then they come to you in confession or counseling, and you're just like, oh, right? Um, I don't actually do that, but it's just a reality. It's a reality. Like, nobody's lives are, are put together. But what we're supposed to do, supposedly, is we're supposed to be able to per perfect our lives and have everything all put together, right? Um, it's what's proposed to us. Well, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is one who proposed that. And then, um, and then John Stuart Mills, which is kind of the, he's the father of utilitarianism, um, that basically roots us in, in the idea that our ultimate fulfillment is pleasure, right? So entertainment and such. Um, once again, especially when that comes to liturgy, right? It's, or our relationship with God, but obviously with liturgy, like, how's that gonna work, right? Because mass is not, it's not very entertaining. And when it is entertaining, it feels very tacky and cheap and superficial, right? So, so if we're shaping people in this way, right, where basically we have these super self-centered individuals, how are we going to relate them to God, right? Uh, because they're so turned in on themselves, and right, and, and to have a relationship with God is to go out of yourselves. To encounter God in the sacrament is to go out of yourself towards the other. Um, how are we going to do that, right? Um, so anyways, that's just a little reflection, I would say, on some elements of what you see in, in how we're shaping people, especially in our modern education system, I would say, and what I see on a regular basis. Um, that's why our young people, like, they go to confirmation class, and I just find they're kind of like, huh? Like, like it's just, it's like, they, they haven't been educated in so long, and, and so this whole sense of anything outside of themselves, anything spiritual, is just, it's very foreign to them. Okay, so, what's a, what's a Christian anthropology? Well, we start with the fact that man is both body and soul, right? Which is a, obviously a fundamental aspect. They were both body and soul. And so um, man relates to the material world as existing in a body, but he relates to the transcendent as existing in a soul. So he must be both body and soul. Um, And so, you know, when we reduce, we, we reduce that either way, right? When we just say man is just a body, well, you have Thomas Hobbes, right? You just have your bodily desires. That's all you are, okay? And you're kind of circled in. But if you're just spirit, well, it's kind of somewhat of kind of the Buddhist mentality, right? The body is nothing. It's just a shell. It's going to waste away, right? Um, and so we almost think we can perfect ourselves, right? We're just these little angels, right, trapped in a body, and we just need to escape. No, we're body and soul. And this is a very sacramental understanding, right? It's through our, it's through our souls, it's, it's, wait, it's from our souls, through our bodies, that we communicate and relate to other people, okay? So the body and the soul are fundamental to who we are. And that's a, that's a sacramental idea, right? To see behind the body the soul, right? This, this deeper part of who you are, the breath of God living within. Um, that's a sacramental sense. So body and soul. Um, two, we have to say that, that man is made in, his, in the image and likeness of God. Okay, that there is more to him, that he has this dignity to him, right? He has this value. Part of the problem with the other philosophers, if you look at it, is that at the end of the day, what gives man value or dignity over another person's life? That they fight for their life, right? No, there's, 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 there's no rooted sense. And so the, the second part is that we have a certain value and a dignity. God has made us in his image and likeness. And with that, we have 
certain capacities. For what? Well, the capacity to know, to, to, to think, to understand, um, to will. Um, these are values and, and gifts that come specifically from the powers of the soul. Um, yeah. Number three, uh, we say then that man is unique and unrepeatable. Okay, so there's there's something unique about each one of us, and so we have this self-understanding, this self-possession, this self-determination. Um, so we can't just kind of, uh, so to speak, reduce man into kind of and put him into a box, so to speak. Each each person is unique and individual. And then third, fourth, and this is the last point, is that. Man is a social animal. And so this whole sense of reducing man to just this kind of little monad floating around in space doesn't make sense, right? Because how do we come to know and perceive even ourselves? Through our parents, right? Through our friends, right? It's why when you isolate a human person by themselves, what happens after a little while? They go crazy, right? So what we do, because, because we're made to be in relationship with other people, right? Even after a few months of complete isolation, you begin to lose your, your own identity and your capacity to even communicate with others, because we're made for relationship. Um, we're, we're, we're social animals by our very nature. Um, so I would say that's a better, better kind of foundation for a human anthropology. That we're made in God's image and likeness, we're body and soul, and we're called then to be in relationship with other people through our bodies. So our bodies are good, but obviously the soul is kind of the heart of our of who we are. Okay. I guess that's a good starting point. Okay. Um, so, that said, what does Pope Benedict, um, having, having kind of understood our kind of where we are anthropologically, what does Pope Benedict give us as advice to how to relate this person, this modern man who is so far from who he's supposed to be, how do we relate him to God and to the sacraments and to the liturgy, which perhaps most of us are very comfortable with? How do we relate that person? Well, the first thing he says is that part of this rediscovery is rediscovering what she calls the creation sacraments. Creation sacraments. And so what he says is that there's some things that you and I encounter on a regular basis that are very sacramental in their very nature. Um, and, and we almost, act on a regular basis, live them out in a... Um, big interruption. So the idea of creation sacraments. So it's the idea that kind of... Already in the human experience, there's are, are, there are ways in which we encounter this, this sacramental idea. So in eating, right, we're not like animals like my dog, who I put out food, and he just goes... Now, you might have somebody in your household who does that, okay? But that would be us relating back to our animal nature. What we do as humans, what we should do is what? We have a meal, right? We sit down and we have a meal. And there's a significance to that, especially if we're a family. We sit down and we share, right, as a family, this meal that we have, you know, we have been brought together, right? So there's a significance to eating, right? It's not just eating, let me nourish my body so I can go out and hunt more things, right? That's, that's no, right? We're not cavemen, okay? We sit down and we, we eat together. There's something about that, right? Um, another one, um, the, 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 for example, the birth of a child, right? Um, it's not just, oh yes, I have reproduced, look at that, right? I passed all my genes, okay? That, that's function, okay? We don't do that, we go, oh, whoa, what did we just do, right? This is amazing, okay? And then, then we take it into our arms and we take care of it, right? There's certain animal species who are like, eh, or certain animal species that, you know, eat their young, right? Mm, delicious, okay? Um, it's true. <laughs> um, 
we don't do that, right? Um, why? Once again, because there's a sacramental idea there, right? That that child is a representation of the love that I've shared between me and my, my significant other, my husband or my wife, right? Um, there's meaning to that. Well, th- there's that's a sacramental idea right there, right? That there's there's meaning behind what has taken place. Um, another one, death. Right? So death as well has, has a sacramental idea. We don't just say, oh, they're dead. Let's move on, right? <laughs> we don't just say, eh, well, I guess we'll just put them over there, right? No, we, we, there's a ritual to it. Even if we're not, you know, even if we're New Age kind of pagans today, which is a lot of people, we have a celebration of life, right? We still do something with the body, right? We, we kind of ritualize it, whether we, we put it in the ground or sadly we scatter their ashes somewhere or we, you know, we turn it into jewelry. We ritualize it because there's a sacramental idea even behind death, right? And then obviously the, the one kind of, at the part of the heart of our, you know, our problems as well is, is, is as well as sexual intimacy, right? So, um, part of our problems in the sense of obviously the sexual revolution, but sexual intimacy as we know, right, properly understood is what? Right? It's renewal and it's a sign of the love of husband and wife together in the context of marriage. Now obviously now we have the hookup culture and we're kind of using our bodies however we want, but um, there's, there's a powerful and deep and beautiful meaning there, right, that can be rediscovered. So all of these are what we call, what Pope Benedict calls creation sacraments, that at the most primeval stage, the sacramental idea is there because we're not animals, because we have a soul, right? And so there's, there's meaning and purpose to what we do with our bodies. There's meaning and purpose to it. And, and so, you know, he, he points then to, you know, obviously there's, we'll, we'll talk about the sacraments more in general, but there's, there's meaning to each of these things that we do. Um, then he says there's a second level. So after these creation sacraments, there's kind of this second level um, that we encounter as well. Uh, and this is kind of in the, the old kind of pagan religions of old, which is one, there's a certain moments where I screw up. Okay, so unlike, unlike people who think like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I screw up and I can't fix it. I've done something terrible and guilt is weighing down upon me. Okay, and this is everybody, right? When you really screw up in a major way and you know it and your conscience is weighing on you, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. It sits there and it eats away at you. Okay, so what do we find in the pagan religions? There's all kinds of penitential rituals. Not quite confession yet, right? It's not your Lenten penance service, okay? But they're doing something, whether it's a ritual washing, whether it's a sacrifice, right? Whether they're, you know, whatever they're doing, there's some kind of penitential nature to what they're doing because they want to get rid of this guilt that they feel, right? Long before there was Catholic guilt, okay? There was still guilt, right? Because it's, it's called the voice of God. Um, but this, this penitential sense. Um, as well, there was these, you know, in the, in the pagan world, you know, there was something that, of the sacramental idea in marriage, right? So marriage itself was ritualized, um, and there was a sacred notion oftentimes to it as well. And then he says as well, we see this among uh, the, when kings or priests were given authority, and they were given authority over the religious cult or over the state itself, right? There was often ritual attached, why? Well, because there was a way of basing society in something greater than yourselves. Okay, so it was a way of, of giving strength and a, giving a foundation to, to a nation or to a kingdom or to a cult, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, in a real sense, we still see that today, right? So in the United States, right, usually when somebody is swearing, you know, to their promise, I don't even know what it's called, okay? You get, you get elected to office, you make your promises. Usually you swear on 
a Bible, right? Or maybe it's the Quran, or I don't know what it is now. So I don't know how crazy things have gotten. Maybe, maybe it's something else. I don't know. But usually you swear on something, right? Well, you're ritualizing that, right? You're saying, you're, you're saying this is bigger than us, right? We're founding ourselves in something greater. Once again, there's something about sacramental idea. And then third, we then can talk about Christian sacraments. So we've talked about kind of creation sacraments, just the sense in the world. Uh, we've talked about kind of in the kind of old kind of pagan rituals that there's a certain sense of sacraments. But then we can talk about Christian sacraments, okay? Um, and what do we say here? Well, we say that, you know, as you examine the world with respect to the fact that there must be an eternal first, right? There must be something that brings all things into being, um, whether we call this God or something else, uh, we begin to say, in a certain sense, how do we relate to this being? Okay, how do we relate to this, the, the, to this one who has always existed? Um, and this really comes out of our, I would say, as we self-reflect, okay? Because our soul, by its very nature, is oriented towards God, okay? It's but, it, but it's, it's kind of the sense that the, the soul almost longs for God. And so it, it, it's, it's almost looking for ways to make contact with God. And, and that hasn't died today, right? We know that because of all the kind of new age mysticism and their crystals and everything. I have a high school friend who does all this crystal stuff now. I'm just like, what the heck is... Anyways, we're still longing for the, for the divine, for the spiritual. We're still going out there, right? There's still this deep yearning, okay? It's just incredibly misplaced. Um, but, but what I would say is that ultimately um, this can lead to that openness to what? To the sacraments, to a certain way of encountering God. And, and that's what we would say we have in the sacraments, um, rooted obviously in these other ways of experiencing the sacraments as well, or experiencing this sacramental idea. Yeah, this is just like Sunday Mass, good competition. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so some other things. Um, why, and, and so this might be modern man as well, and Pope ben Benedict will answer this question. Why does, do I have to go to church to encounter God, right? God's in the world. God made everything. Why do I have to go to the church specifically? Um, why do I have to encounter the sacraments in that way? Uh, and it's here that Pope Benedict reminds us that while God does not just dwell in the church, in the tabernacle, right? He dwells in, in many other ways. Um, because our, we are bodily creatures, we're corporal creatures, right? That's the way that we can relate to God, right? It's not, God's not saying, well, this is the only way I can relate to you is if you go into that church down the street and then, no, right? No, He's, he's, he's trying to reach out to us, right? He says, well, the only way you're going to understand and encounter me properly is if you go to church, okay? That's where you're going to encounter me, and that's how you're going to understand my love for you, and that's how you're going to be transformed, right? So it's not so much like, kind of in a sense, it's reducing God. It's just recognizing our own human limitations, okay? That we are bodily creatures, okay, uh, and that we're... And, and then we're bound to history, and so we're, we're bound to this world. And so the way in which we're going to encounter God is through the church and through Jesus Christ, who came in history, just as we are part of history, right? It, it, there's, a, there's that kind of attachment to that. Um, what we want today is we kind of just want to be these angelic beings who just kind of, I'm just going to go connect with God. It's like, no, you're in a body, right? You're in the world, okay? And so the way God's going to relate to you is through a body, through the world, right? and he does that through Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so to kind of see that connection is one of the things um, 
Pope Benedict. Um, another thing to keep in mind is, or another question is, why do we have to? Um, why do we have to do liturgy or, or, or the sacraments, you know, as we do them? Why do we have to have all these kind of like formalized, formalized ritual? And one of the beautiful things Pope Benedict says is that what the liturgy does is almost provides a retreat from the chaos of the modern world and of the stress of work. Uh, in a real sense, it's like an oasis of freedom. It's a place of play, he says, or rediscovery within us of true childhood, of the sense that there's more to come. Um, you know, the, I've always been curious about this whole um, mid middle age crisis that supposedly a lot of men go through. Um, and I was like, why is that? Well, part of the reason is because, you know, a man gets to, you know, 45 or 50, he has his wife, he has his kids, he basically has his job maybe, and he says, oh, well, this is it. Right? And yeah, I mean, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe that there's a sense of something more, this is it, right? Your kids are going to leave. Maybe they're going to have kids. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're going to be potheads. Okay? You, you know, you're going to grow old and then you're going to die. <laughs> and, and so no wonder you have this crisis because you can't make these new life decisions. You can't go on this new adventure or, or, or find something else, right? This is pretty much it, right? Unless there's this sense of something more. And what the liturgy does is it opens up that vast horizon. It says there is so much more in store. And so there's a certain peace and a joy, I would say, uh, that comes with liturgy um, that even the most estranged modern man, and by modern man, obviously, I mean modern woman as well, um, will find an openness to, this sense of something more. Um, and I would say, you know, in, in liturgy that's well celebrated, um, whether it's in the East or in the West, there is an attraction there, right? There's a sense of, huh. I've never experienced this before, right? This is, is something so uncommon to me because there's that openness to the divine, right? This sense of something more. And the liturgy is, in a real sense, um, offers that. All right, two more comments and I'll stop. Um, one, um, and this comes especially since uh, the diocese, uh, one diocese in Montana, and now I think it's the Archdiocese of Baltimore, have decided you can get married outside. I do not agree with that. Now, um, why? Why do we need the church at all, right? And we can get married outside, we can get married on the beach, no problem, okay? Um, obviously, the church, the bishops can do that, so I'm not saying bishops don't have that authority. But why do we get married in the church in the first place? Why do we even have the church building? And it's, and it's important to remind ourselves that, um, that we are moving, in, in terms of God's revelation, from shadow to image to reality, Okay, so in, in shadow in the Old Testament. God is present, but we don't really kind of have this full understanding of who God is. God is not revealed as a trinity. He is not quite yet our father. He, he's a fatherly figure, right? We pass to, in a real sense, we can say the image in the person of Jesus Christ, and ah, we know more of who God is. He is trinity, he is father, son, and holy spirit. He willingly gives his life for us. He is like a good shepherd, certainly, but it's still an image, Right? Because you don't see, except for in the moment of the transfiguration, what? Jesus Christ's divinity. It's hidden. It's hidden. And then obviously you have the resurrection account, but it's largely hidden. So we have it in image. The reality is what? It's still to come. 
right? And that's when we'll be in heaven with God face to face, beatific vision, okay? So we're still moving from shadow to image where we are to reality. And so insofar as we are an image, we need symbols and signs to communicate to us the divine, okay? And the church helps us to do that, right? As this set, up, set apart place um, where we encounter the divine, okay? So the church building still is very significant. And so I find it hard to justify the whole wedding outside the church because then it's, the wedding becomes more, and maybe some of you have already done this or you're going to do it or something, you're going to go to Montana, but um, the, the, by taking it outside the church, it's, you're saying the sacrament is more about you and about what you want, I would say, rather than saying the sacrament is more about what the Lord wants to do in your marriage and how he wants your marriage to serve the church. Right? And then that's an important part to remember that a lot of couples oftentimes forget is that your marriage isn't simply to raise your children and get your wife to heaven or your husband to heaven. It's to sanctify the church as well, to be a sign and a witness to the church. Um, and so we can lose that, especially when we just say, ah, this is just my thing and I'm going to do it somewhere else. So um, just something to think about in terms of the church building as well and, and why, we, why we still need them and we need beautiful ones as well. Okay, and then lastly... I would just mention as well, and Pope Benedict mentions the liturgical year. So this rhythm, right? There's a certain rhythm, and especially, obviously, the Sabbath day, the, the, the day of the Lord. Um, it's an escape from the burden of work, right? And so we're in a very much of a workaholic culture. Hopefully that's not you, but it is me right now. Um, and I justify it because I'm a priest, so I'm saving the world. I'm not. Um, Jesus is, hopefully. Um, but, but we can fall into that. And so the beauty of, of, of the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the day of the Lord, is, is we you know, we turn back to the Lord, right? And we find this kind of peace, this respite um, from the weight and the burdens of the world. Um, Pope Benedict specifically talks about how, um, you know, we're, a lot of times what our culture is doing is we're using that weekend for diversion, for relaxation, for liberation from the toils. But what we really long for is, is really good communion, right? To be in relationship, especially with God and, and with those around us. That's what we long for, right? We think, oh, well, I'll just take this big vacation or something and then I'll be happy. It's like, no. What we ultimately long for is communion. And so it's something I would say as well to tap into, especially if we're thinking about people in our lives, is to tap into that sense of, of what do they actually long for? What do they really want? And especially communion, right? Relationship, uh, relationship to God, um, I would say is, is what will satisfy their hearts. So, that said, what have I covered? Um, I'm, what I'm just suggesting is that there are some things, especially what Pope Benedict says, that can help us to perhaps make the sacraments and make mass, make the liturgy more credible to people who are on the edges or perhaps completely outside the spectrum of, of, of faith at all, okay? Um, by talking about how it is relatable to, to what we live as human persons, especially in terms of these kind of creation sacraments. Um, but as well, I would say, into these, the longings and the yearnings of our hearts. We want more. We long for God, right? And we can see that just in the evidence of our modern culture. We're not happy, right? We're not happy. And so what's going to bring us happiness? Um, and what Pope Benedict proposes, and obviously what the church proposes, is that um, the Lord alone will suffice. So, all right, there you go. Okay. Now we can talk about specifics. Yes, sure. Yeah, so how, you know, if, if there's this vision for how the liturgy is going to do all these things. Yes. What does that look like in the light of Pope Benedict's pontificate? Well, he, he was pontificum? Yeah, he resigned, so... Well, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I. Well, what I'm what I'm proposing is that you know part of part of what we need to do 
is, is what I'm saying is, is talking, I mean, there's a celebration of the sacraments, certainly, and that's, a, I would say, that's maybe perhaps where you're going. But what I'm proposing is more so kind of how we need to go about talking about the sacraments and living the sacraments ourselves, if that kind of makes sense. And so kind of envisioning that and making it relatable to the people. Um, you know, because that's one of the things I try to do, especially what I preach, is, is to make the sacraments relatable. Um, not to dumb them down, but to make it so that they don't seem so foreign, right? Um, I think baptism is very common to people who are like, oh yeah, christening, whatever. The Eucharist, ooh, you know? Um, and not to dumb it down, but to make it so that it, it has a certain sense, right? One of the ways I talk about the Eucharist, um, and so some people are familiar with this, but you know, I, I talk about it in the sense that just as we were once in our mother's wombs, right? And you think about how were you fed in your mother's womb? That umbilical cord, and what was pouring through that umbilical cord? Blood. <laughs> Your mother's blood, right, was nourishing you and giving you life in this world. It's a very carnal image. It's a beautiful image, right? She was giving you her flesh and blood to have life in this world. So the same, you know, so in a very similar way, right, Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, so as to give you the promise of eternal life, gives you his flesh and blood, pours it forth out of his, his wounded side, right? Um, but kind of that tangibleness, kind of giving that sense of, of how this could make sense. Yeah, there's, certainly it's mystery. Um, but to kind of give it that tangible sense. How do we do that practically in terms of liturgy? Pray for good leaders in the church. <laughs> well, because, yeah, exactly. There you go. Pray, um, it's just because at the end of the day, the this is the part you can edit out. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but at the end of the day, you, you have to you have to realize is that the, the, the hierarchy and the clergy across the United States and across the world, their formation totally differs, right? And so, so the approach to celebration of the sacraments of liturgy is so broad and it's all over the spectrum, right? So how are you going to get, you know, 5,000, 6,000, how, how many priests are in our... I don't even know how many priests are in the United States. Was it 50,000, 30,000? Anyways, how are you going to get even all those priests on the same page, let alone in a diocese? You know, that's uh, that's a challenge, right? So, I mean, what Pope Benedict in part says is, is you know, little things himself, right? So, obviously, Pope Benedict, for example, is very famous for talking about, um, you know, praying to the east, okay? So, pr everyone praying in the same direction or what we call ad orientum versus ad populum, towards the people. Um, but he himself in, his, in, in some of his writings suggests that there was such this radical change to, like, flip the altars around and put a freestanding altar, right? That freaked everybody out. Some people liked it, but it freaked a whole lot of people out. It says, so if you flip the altar back around just tomorrow, it's going to freak all these other people out, right? And so he's like, baby steps, right? He says, put a cross on the altar. And this was the kind of the Benedictine style, right? Put some candles on the altar, put the cross on the altar, give the cross as the center, as the focus for worship. And so, I mean, what he would suggest is kind of these slower steps. And I think we saw that in his pontificate, right? He, he did publish... Uh, you can say it for me. Pon the, yes, that, that made it so that extraordinary form was very accessible. Um, you know, and so I would say he, he did it in that kind of slow way rather than, you know, what we've seen at times were these broad strokes. Um, because I would say that would upset the faith of the people even more, so to speak. Um, and at the same time, we don't have that many priests anyway. So it's either have the sacraments very barely available anywhere and have them very well celebrated or have them celebrated, but have, them, you know, a wider... Wider spread, yeah. So, helps a little, perhaps. Yes, in the back. So you mentioned that people baby steps. Baby steps, yes. Yeah. So, what would be so I, that's what I'm presuming on him, but he might not. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so what would you think that this end game would be 
Endgame? Hmm. Pope Benedict's Inc. Endgame. I would say that they're both, and I assume what we're talking really about is about the extraordinary form. The ordinary form is that they're both celebrated um, with, with, the, with, I would say, the original intent of the council, or in a, obviously even before. Um, in talking with some of my priest friends, um, you know, because here's the, here's the, you know, and this is something I would say to keep in mind is that Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the document on the liturgy from the Second Vatican Council, gave these kind of broad principles, okay? And then what, was ha what happened is a committee, perhaps of not the most brilliant and brightest, okay, took that document and created their own thing, you know, their own thing, and they created the Novus Ordo, right? So is the Novus Ordo, so the mass that many of us encounter, what we call the ordinary form of the Roman Rite, is it the most beautifully put together, uh, you know, liturgy? Not necessarily, and so could there be changes over time? You know, perhaps, you know, but I'm thinking it's probably gonna be a hundred, you know, a couple hundred years before that, before we get to that point, perhaps. Um, but I would say at this point, like those baby steps are celebrating this, the, the rites as they should be celebrated, right? And so we've all experienced, like, you know, you go to mass and you're like, they kind of ad-lib that part, right? And I still experience that when I go and can celebrate. I'm like, what are you doing, right? Um, you know, why didn't you mention Jesus Christ? No, um, that's not the first. Anyways, so I, I would say that's kind of the slow movement because to, to do a whole reform of the, for example, the Novus Ordo would be something that would probably require a council, I would think. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying absolute, and I'm not saying that's what Pope Benedict would say, but I would say it would involve obviously uh, a commitment on the part of the whole church because the Novus Ordo is largely what's celebrated, you know, around the world. Yes, in the back. Uh, on that note, the Novus Ordo, isn't that, is there an actual term, the Novus Ordo, because hmm. the ordinary form. There's an extraordinary form, and then there's the ordinary form. Yeah, I mean it's possible. Um, I'd have to look into that more. You might be right. I was I was using the Novus Ordo more so just to distinguish from you know the Trinity Mass or the extraordinary form. Exactly. Yeah, well, and, and so I mean that's that's obviously I would say is the what I was trying to say at the outset is that at the end of the day. The liturgy over 2,000 years, there's been development. I would never say that, you know, we should dummy it down completely, no. But there has been that development. So obviously, have been, saints been produced uh, over the last, you know, practically 2,000 years, especially with the older form of the Mass? Certainly, right? And that's what Pope Benedict says. It's like, how are you going to throw out this the, the Mass that made, like, St. Catherine of Siena and St. Francis, you know, all these different saints? It's like, that doesn't really make sense, right? Um, but at the same time, to recognize something of the Holy Spirit in the development of, of, of the, what you call the ordinary form of the Roman Rite, right? So not to say it's perfectly done. I think you can you can debate that as well. Um, and I debate it with some of my priest friends. But but uh, there, I mean, I would say there's something of the Holy Spirit and all that. Yes? Well, to go off that, my question would be, you know, with the idea of the reform of the reform, you know, with the new mass or the new order of mass, it, it seems, and there have been commentaries to this fact, that the, you know, most people judge the 
a, a well-done Novosordo mm. in relation to the extraordinary form. Mm. I mean, how do we judge, I guess, the ordinary form on its own feet Well, in the shadow of... It wouldn't be in the shadow. I mean, part of what I think Pope Benedict Emeritus said when he released the, oh gosh, Pontus, Pontus. Yes, sorry. I'm not always good with my Latin phrases. Um, was that he wanted them to enrich each other. Okay, and so and so you can't just take the Novus Ordo, uh, or the, how you might mean, the ordinary from the Roman right, just say, okay, well, it stands alone. No, it's built on that tradition, right? And so, you know, and part of the problem I would say, especially for priests, is that a lot of the rubrics that were in the extraordinary form aren't in the or, the ordinary form, yet they're almost implied, right? And so there's, what I, what I would say is that the extraordinary form should hopefully influence the ordinary form in that way and kind of helping it, it's, I would say it's still development because there are, what I found, there are pieces missing, so to speak, if that makes sense. Not like there's missing in the mass, but just like certain parts of like, what are you supposed to do at this point? What are you supposed to do with your hands? Or what, you know, certain things like that. Um, so, but I would say part of what he was, Pope Benedict Emeritus would say is that there's supposed to be this mutual enrichment, so. I've heard that phrase, but I'm, I guess my question You're dubious. What mutual enrichment will the new mask give back to the extraordinary form? Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Well, in part because, the, so the, with extraordinary form, um, and I just saw an article recently about this, was like, um, is, is because, the, you know, the way the rubrics are set up, right, they're, they're very, very specific. So, I mean, you know, that's part of the, I would say that's part of the ongoing question. Um, I would say more so, my sense is that there's an enrichment from the extraordinary form to the ordinary form because what had happened, especially after the council, was just like, extraordinary form, gone. Ordinary form, here, right? And so I think more of that enrichment is the extraordinary form helping to kind of form and to form our understanding of the, of the ordinary form of the Roman rite, to be honest, yeah. So the, the enrichment, wouldn't it be more present if any of us have ever seen a Novus Ordo Mass as the council intended it. Mm. Nobody's ever seen, I and mean, I've seen maybe three of those in my life, like reading the documents. Yeah. I've seen a few, quite a few. Well, that is to say that the, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, mm -hmm. you know, they're all for Latin. They're yep. all for Ad yeah. How many of us have ever seen a Novus Ordo Mass done the way the council explicates it? Very few, but when it's done beautifully, it's it's like wow, there's something there. So I guess why have why don't we see more of that? Because you know there's a lot of things that are commonly practiced yeah. in the Nova Sordo. Nova Sordo. Sorry, extraordinary form. Yeah, ordinary form. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, the ordinary form, wrong right. There's so many things that are so commonly practiced that just yeah. aren't there. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. And it, I mean, it goes back in part to formation. And give me the squeeze at the end. You yeah. Know, you don't like the squeeze? I don't like the squeeze. <laughs> well, it's also not called the sacramentary. It's called the Roman Missal. But see, you're falling into it too. Okay, no. Um, the yeah, I mean, part of it goes down to formation, but also you have to real. I mean, part of the challenges is not only. Not only do you have to form priests well, right? You also have to then form the people who have been oftentimes malformed for 10, 20, 30, or 40 years, right? So it's, what I would say, it's a very, that's why the whole baby step thing is like, yeah, yeah, a lot of this stuff has to happen kind of slowly, I would say. Okay, so but yeah. like baby steps aside, yep. people, 
are taking baby steps out of the church. Oh, yeah, of course. Or they're taking baby steps to St. Stephen's. They're like, yep. oh, where's this bell in my life? You yep. know, when they go to St. George, Melkite, right? Where's this yep. bell in my life? That's it for me. Yep. You know, and I think, you know, the, the, the incremental approach, if that's, if that's Benedict's actual position, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. you got to be careful what's Pope Benedict's and what's mine, but yeah. But isn't that safe to say that it's not working? It's just we're bleeding souls with that attitude. Well, we've been bleeding souls since, you know, well, since the beginning, actually. But but especially since, you know, obviously the 60s, we've been, you know, bleeding. I mean, there's, I would say there's there's cultural reasons. There's all kinds of reasons involved in that. Part of it is liturgical. It's not the whole whole gambit. Um, You know, so insofar as it's liturgical, it's just the reality because... Oh, oh, why? Hello. Hello, seminarian Ryan Maher. How are you doing? Oh, and seminarian... uh, Panduro. They can maybe answer some of these questions. Um, but I, I, I mean, I would just say as, as a priest, part of what you have to do is you have to follow, obviously follow um, who's in charge. Uh, and so you, you, so that's, I mean, so that's part of that progressiveness is you have to follow who's in charge. Because here's the thing at the end of the day, if you piss off the wrong people, well, you're not going to have a job anymore. And so, I mean, so none of, some of this stuff wouldn't work anyways. You get what I'm saying? So that's what I'm saying. Part of that is you have to work within the church itself. Holy, Pope Benedict did that. I mean, you look at Cardinal Sarah, he's a little bit more throw the tables over and such like that. God bless his heart, but he's also not exactly having a whole ton of success that way, right? So it's like, how do you work within the framework of the church, which has been political since the very beginning? Um, how do you work within that framework and not just say, okay, let me throw over the tables and go somewhere else? Um, because otherwise you lose more because then there's nobody present to serve those people. And so that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that this is a perfect solution. I'm just saying that and I would say what Pope Benedict says is you have to move so as to take as many people with you as you go. Um, and, and so that's the, the challenge of the shepherd is like, here's where I want to lead you. Here's where you are. Whether it's liturgical, whether it's moral, here's where you are, right? Okay, you're contracepting or whatever. Okay, here's where you are. I'm not going to, my first homily is not going to be, okay, and contraception is a mortal sin. So if you're doing that, no communion, right? <laughs> Sorry if that offends anyways, right? I don't do that, right? I, you know, why? Because that's, I'm not going to get the most sheep in the right direction, right? That's, you know, that's a, a year, maybe two in where I'm going to begin to talk about the moral life more and slowly bring them in the right direction so they know for that they're love, you know, so that's, I mean, that's part of the challenge, and the other part of the challenge is most priests don't stick around very long anywhere, so how do you develop those relationships so you can lead people in the right direction? The other problem, obviously, is we don't have very many vocations, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's all these kind of different challenges involved in that, so that's why I suggest you have to move within the, the realm of the church, you have to be political, because we are social beings, so we are political by our nature, so, yes? Oh, welcome, so, St. George Melkite. I guess the thing that really hit me seeing the old rites yep. um, is the typologies, the scriptural yep. and the, type, the typologies of the Holy Fathers are in the liturgy and they're yep. beautiful. Um, growing up in the Novus Ordo, I mean, my mom grew up with that, with nuns and all that. Yep. But just like seeing, uh, and, and someone's going to get angry, but just seeing dun, dun, dun. ministers of the Eucharist where the, the measure of extraordinary is like more than 10 minutes to distribute the Eucharist to the back of the church yeah. isn't very extraordinary to me yeah. uh, the genders of the acolytes that these things that like that even Pope Francis in his like gestures he's destroyed some ritual typologies of the well, he can't. He can't. He can't destroy them. He can't destroy them. But, but he can. He can modify them or change them. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So, 
I guess my question is, what do we do to reassert the typologies that kind of, in the Latin realm, people are like, oh, the liturgy is great, you learn all the scripture, but then you go to church and like, I don't see the typologies play out as much as the biblical scholars on like EWTN point them out. Yeah. You know, so like, how do you, how do we replace them with that with all staying in the spirit of Saint Benedict? I mean, Pope Benedict. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, a lot of the, maybe not, you know, I'd have to look at specifically kind of the Melkite, right? But I mean, there, there is obviously typology there, um, you know, um, but how do you do that? I mean, it goes, I think it goes back to the same thing. I mean, it's, it's our general discouragement because we need more holy priests uh, to, uh, to encourage kind of the renewal in the liturgy, you know, so I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's the same kind of response. I mean, obviously there, there is that challenge when the Novus Ordinary Form isn't celebrated necessarily with that kind of dignity, but I think a lot of the typology is there. I mean, Scott Hahn kind of, you know, he talks about his own conversion and he sees a lot of it. I mean, I, a lot of it's there, um, but it's not just very, I don't think it's very well done, to be honest, at the end of the day, but I would say a lot of it's there. Not all of it. I think we've lost some, but a bunch is there, but... No perfect answer there. Yes, in the back. Oh, yes, please. Sorry. Obviously, very effective, but not all families can do this. Is you homeschool your kids. Um, number two, you send them to a good Catholic school, right? Um, wait, what? Or number three, um, you have to supplement a lot, right? And I, that's where I think. Um, I mean, finding, obviously, in a parish a good catechetical program, but you have to supplement on your own. You have to actually be invested, I would say, in what they're learning on a regular basis um, and kind of um, enriching their their knowledge. Um, I don't have a specific plan for that, but I would just say that a big part is the parental investment. The problem is, is a lot of times parents say, yeah, I want my kids to be Catholic. I'll drop them off. I'll pick them up. I won't talk to them about the faith, right? And so to kind of to talk to them about things, to explain things, I think that's the beautiful thing about the good sh- What's it called? No. That thing, um, that like you know, stuff where you get the kids thinking from the beginning, right? I just had the Dominican sisters um, for vacation Bible school for a week, right? And they're doing a lot of kind of just getting these kids to think about this stuff. And to, you know, at one point we have a mural in our church of of Saint Catherine Drexel, and a kid looks and says, "Huh?" And then looks at the sisters like, "Hey, that's a sister!" And it says like. Yeah, right? Because for so long, like, they just walk by, they don't see anything, and then, like, it comes in person in the flesh, and it's like, oh, wait, these sisters, you know, still exist. There are still consecrated sisters, you know, to, to kind of make those links. But I, I, I would say just part of that kind of is kind of uh, fleshing it, so to speak, and teaching it. Um, what do mo- mother and father do? Um, as I've always encouraged in marriage prep, obviously father has to be the spiritual head of the house. That doesn't mean woman is not important in the life of the faith. Woman is the heart of the home. She's Mary. But the father has to lead spiritually. And that's that's the key. That's what studies um, show out, is that if mom practices the faith and dad doesn't practice the faith, most of the kids will not continue to practice the faith. If dad practices the faith, mom doesn't practice the faith, majority of kids will continue on. And obviously the best solution is mom and dad both practice the faith. But the 
kids look to father as the spiritual head of the household. And so to, so to see, especially father talking about faith, praying, saying, let's go to church, right, to kind of lead the family, um, and, and for women especially to give kind of that place for man. Because oftentimes, you know, and this is for most of us, this is how my mom was, she was the spiritual head of the house, right? She's the one who said, okay, let's pray. Hey, let's go to church, all of these things. And my dad was like, no, I think I'll go to the Mass earlier in the morning because it's faster. It's like, well, okay, so how am I going to see my faith, right? So to allow that place for Father to lead. Obviously, a mother has that essential component in the, in the life of the faith, but kids intuit that. They already know Mom is spiritual. They want to see that Dad is spiritual. So to kind of allow for that, that play off of each other, um, is I would say, is key. Yeah. Yes? Yes. Um, as a layperson who has been involved in music ministry and will probably get back into music ministry mm-hmm. soon yes. in the near future, um, how can people uh, of the congregation help to uh, take things from the extraordinary, right? I don't know, I'll hold the term. And you're talking musically, specifically. So you're, yeah, I mean, the yeah, I mean, and part of it obviously would be getting involved, getting engaged in a parish where it might at least be somewhat supported, um, because you're talking about. Um, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, it's Latin, whether it's chant, whether it's kind of the antiphons and such like that, right, which is a whole other thing, right, the, the using antiphons, it's like totally foreign to people, except when it's the responsorial psalm or the Gloria. Um, but, so, I mean, you've got to find, obviously, you have to find a place where it's at least kind of open or supportive to that. I've tried it in a couple different places with varied success, um, in part because you have to have, especially a music person who is charismatic enough to sell it to people. Um, and that's hard. A lot of times, music people, no offense, music people, <laughs> they're not always very relational with people to kind of to sell it to people. And so a lot of times it's like, oh, well, the person, the music director just did this, and then, you know, and, it's, and, and people don't buy into it. And so to kind of, you gotta, you have to slowly initiate it. So I would say is finding a program where it's already kind of set up, unless you're, you're already trained and you're gonna take over a parish, um, but I've already heard of a number of disaster stories, so. Um, and I've tried in different ways, little tiny ways, like, hey, let's try this, let's try this, with very, very varied success. And so right now my, my, my plan is just kind of a little bit of hands off, waiting, biding my time, because it's, it's hard, it's hard to, to bring, bring stuff of that in because people are so not used to it. Joseph Morello is doing that right now. Oh, good. Nova Sordo Parish, but yeah. bringing in for like half of the masses, doing all the antiphons. Well, yeah. And the parish loves it. Yeah, and I mean, when when I went to school in Rome at the North American College, that's all we did. We we sang all the antiphons, we did Latin, we did the chant. Um, we didn't, we rarely sang hymns. We did sing some hymns, but we did a lot of the antiphonal stuff. So for me, it's very normal, and it's like, oh yeah, that sounds great. And then you get in, and then you know, try to do it in a normal mass, and nobody sings. <laughs> and then you try to teach them, and they're like, hmm, hmm, you know, because they they want, you know. On Eagle's Wings. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Which isn't a terrible song, but it's, just, you know, it's maybe not the ideal. Anyways. Other questions? Good. We didn't kill anyone today, and we talked about liturgy. That's good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, I would say liturgy is at the heart of the church. That's what Pope Benedict would say, and that's why, even though he was not a... 
He wasn't a liturgist. He was a dogmatic theologian, fundamental theologian, but one of his great areas of thought is liturgy is because he sees it as the, at the heart of the church. Um, you know, Benedict, St. Benedict himself said the same thing, right? This is the core of what we do. And so um, we fight about it, good in a certain sense. Why? Because we recognize it, that it is the most important thing we do. And, and it's from our liturgy and from the way we celebrate the Eucharist that we will be transformed and changed and become the saints um, that the world needs. So, good? All right. sponsored by St. Joseph Morello Parish in Granite Bay, California, and St. Mel Parish in Fair Oaks, California. Learn more at catholicveritas.com.